Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we refocus on the UK's political and economic experience of the coronavirus crisis, discussing the latest gossip from Westminster, why England's experience is so different from other home nations, and asking whether investors should buy the FTSE, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Sophie Traherne, Senior UK Political Analyst, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This time, we are refocusing on the UK's political and economic experience of this crisis. And we've got Sophie back with us, our government relations expert, and Will Hobbs, our CIO. There's, um, yeah, what can I say? There's been no shortage of controversy in the last couple of weeks. Um, What with the travails of the PM's chief advisor, but we'll hear a little bit about that in a minute. Well, let's start off with what's been going on globally. Um, it seems that there's a bit more optimism on the outlook for the world economy seeping into markets. We've seen riskier assets such as stocks rising again. Yes, and, I, and I'm just first of all so glad you're not coming to me uh, with the question uh, about um, that chief advisors and that this is <laughs> to be put into Sophie's tactful hands. I don't want to blunder into uh, anymore. So I'll focus on the Stay economy. well clear. Yeah, but but I think from 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 your market's perspective, yes. Uh, I mean, you've seen that um, investors have been watching the experience of those economies um, that have um, relaxed containment measures a bit earlier, uh, and so far there is tentative calls for a bit of hope. Um, it's very early days. It's interesting because if we go back to that framework um, of seeing market prices as reflecting. Um, you know, a kind of weighted uh, assessment of the range of probable outcomes, uh, probable future outcomes, and they're weighted according to their evolving likelihood of actually occurring. Now, towards the end of March, as we pointed out, we felt that extreme negative risks were actually uh, being exaggerated, or the likelihood of recurring uh, of them occurring was. Now, right now, um, we're sort of we've swung towards the other end a little bit. Uh, the rosier scenarios as as uh, probably being a little bit overemphasized. Um, and as a result, actually, you know, we've taken action in portfolios. We've been uh, trimming our exposure to those kind of more economically um, sensitive assets. But, but like I say, the news has been a bit better over the uh, over the last couple of weeks, and so there is some some foundation um, for um, for these kind of slightly brighter stock markets. And specifically in the UK, the the FTSE has also taken part in this rally as well, hasn't it? Yeah, to a certain extent, uh, the FTSE has done. You know, the UK, um, you know, largest quoted companies it has done terribly uh, relative to many other indices around the world this year. Um, There's lots of reasons for this. It has a lot of exposure to the energy and materials sectors, which obviously haven't helped, as you've seen, very difficult um, uh, commodity markets. Um, It doesn't offer much exposure to the tech sector either, which is, again, unhelpful because the tech sector has been obviously very well insulated from all of this um, uh, for a number of reasons. However, investors around the world seem to have decided more recently that some of these unlikely loved parts of the market are simply too cheap relative to a reasonable assessment of their fundamental outlook. Um, so we've seen uh, you know, a bit of a bounce. The, the message from all of this, though, from us is that really just do not just focus on the FTSE or the UK uh, as an investment opportunity. That's a little bit like going into a gigantic sweet store uh, and just limiting yourself to the um, to licorice all sorts. Just bizarre. <laughs> Sorry, a weird analogy. Hopefully that, you get the point. Mm, okay. <laughs> and and Sophie, turning to you, I mean, this all sounds 
some way away from from the UK government situation. Can you just share with us a little bit about what's been going on in number 10? Yes, um, so hard to avoid this story uh, if you haven't seen, uh, if you've seen the news since the, the bank holiday weekend. Uh, essentially, the, the Prime Minister's top political aide, Dominic Cummings, uh, found himself on the front pages after it came to light that he'd driven from uh, London to Durham uh, with his family during lockdown. I won't go into the details of the case, but the, the story really kicked off uh, last Friday and then led to an hour-long press conference held by Cummings in the Downing Street Garden on Monday. And this, this certainly is not not normal for political advisers to hold their own press conferences or to take Q&A publicly like that from political journalists. But I suppose the story was gaining a bit of traction beyond the Westminster bubble and, and they needed to grip the situation before it really started impacting on public opinion. And there has, of course, been further coverage about this over the last few days. And, and the Prime Minister was asked uh, yesterday about it. And as expected, he refused to be drawn into kind of commenting any further, saying that the government must move on uh, to focus on the next steps in its corona response. And, and that's really where the focus needs to be. And, you know, although there has been a lot of political commentary about this and, and even a ministerial resignation over it, it does seem that the media coverage has, has slowed today. And, and I suppose number 10 will, will continue to try and tough this one out. And today being Thursday, obviously our listeners may download this and listen at any time. And who knows, toss a dice to, to, to consider whether, whether this is still in, in the news when our listeners are experiencing this podcast. But I yeah, guess, absolutely. you know, the relevance here is for, for us, unhelpfully, this story is competing with Ox- uh, for Oxygen with the government's latest thinking on, on how the lockdown measures will evolve. Therefore, how that impacts on people, but also, you know, we'll come back to Will later, but, but you know, how, how that might impact the, the recovery in GDP, etc. Yes, I mean, the, the, you know, there was a really big announcement over the bank holiday weekend about further easing of the lockdown, uh, which was, was, as you've alluded to, slightly pushed down the news agenda. But mm. essentially, we are moving to the second phase of reopening the economy. So from the 1st of June next week, uh, the plan is to reopen some elements of primary education, as well as uh, opening up some other parts of the economy, so outdoor markets, car showrooms. And then from the 15th of June, all non-essential retail should open. So you know, shops selling clothes, toys, furniture, books, etc. So quite a big uh, announcement from the government. And, and the Prime Minister did make it clear earlier in the week that this is all conditional on that all important R rate continuing to fall. Um, one area that the Prime Minister touched on yesterday during this committee hearing that he was part of uh, in the House of Commons, or virtually in the House of Commons, um, was hospitality. And he basically indicated that there might be light at the end of the tunnel with some cafes and restaurants might be being able to open at the start of July, as long as they adhere to social distancing rules. Um, his, his actual words were, it's, it's very difficult to bring forward hospitality measures in a way that involves social distancing, but I'm much more optimistic about that than I was. And I think we may be able to do things faster than I previously thought. So clearly not confirmed, but, but an indication of things to come and, and all still very much conditional on how things progress with the R8. Yeah. And just on those lockdown measures, I mean, what, what do you sense is the general view on the public mood? What are you seeing in polling? Is there anything here that can give us insight as to whether the general public is supporting the lifting of, of the lockdown by government in, in certain ways? Yes, yeah, so the polling's been really interesting. Um, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about how public support for the lockdown and the government's approach remained pretty high. Uh, and so, you know, this next stage is clearly quite tricky for the government. How do they ease the restrictions 
maintain public confidence and that is the right thing to do whilst at the same time emphasizing the risks remain over over this sort of potential second wave um obviously it depends as ever which poll you look at but one um you know one i've seen recently suggested um that views are very mixed from the public about the lockdown being lifted uh, for example a snap yougov poll which is a little old now but happened when the government announced the plan for easing restrictions uh, that showed that people are fairly split 44 percent support the move 43 percent opposed remaining 13 percent are unsure uh, a more recent poll i saw asked is the lockdown being eased too fast or too slow just over 50 percent said too fast 30 percent about right 11 percent too slow so compared to where we were it does seem that public opinion is quite mixed at this stage right and will there's there's such a huge range of government responses to this crisis across the world and obviously it's unfolded at different junctures around the world we've talked about this before but is there any sense of sort of winning strategies starting to emerge from all of this just on Sophie's point there, I thought that was really interesting just in the polls, just before I answer your question. Sorry, I always mm. do this, Nikki, but the point on, um, on, on, on the public is really important because, you know, what we found from the experience of Asia is that you shouldn't assume that just as restrictions are lifted, consumers just go back to previous norms. Uh, it's a much more cautious story than that. And I think now that, you know, Sophie's point on the polls does to a certain extent illustrate that. But, but on your question, I think, you know, this is one really as- interesting aspect of this, um, you know, this terrible crisis, you know, in many senses, the modern world should be better equipped to fight it um, than its predecessors. Uh, you know, so the breathtaking pace of vaccine development is one example of this. However, another, I think, is our ability to watch more or less uh, in real time what works and what doesn't around the world. Now, the mark of the highest quality administrations may be less about getting to the right answer first. Uh, you know, there may be some luck in there, to be honest, um, although, you know, that, that's obviously going to be nice to have. It, it's more about how quickly and effectively you adapt your strategy uh, as the right answers become more apparent um, in this kind of live global experiment. And are there any other factors beyond the government response that help to explain the differences between the home nations and their experience of this crisis? Yeah, I mean, this, again, has got quite a lot of sort of media coverage, um, understandably, in a sense, because, you know, so, so some people have looked, uh, and it's, it's like I say, it's got quite a lot of coverage. Some people have looked at something, um, you know, trying to assess the spread of the um, the coronavirus and its effects. It's quite difficult because, you know, obviously, um, testing is, we're not doing full population testing really anywhere. Um, so what some people are looking at is something called excess mortality. So, you know, this is the quantity of lives sadly lost um, in the last few months uh, above the norm for that or above the average for that time of year. Um, Now, there are obvious pros and cons to this way of looking at it. Um, You know, it's a very sort of, you know, rough and ready measure. But what it does show, and this is what people were talking about, is that England is an outlier, uh, both in the home nations and wider Europe, um, and and not not in a good way. Uh, from the statistic. Now, you, you can find those st- these statistics on the Office for National Statistics uh, if you are interested. Uh, it's a very good, um, good website, good resource for those who are interested. Now, certainly, when we look at England versus the home nations, you know, London is a gigantic factor to consider. Uh, London's international connectedness uh, put it on the front line in the first place. Uh, and this is where the outbreak really took hold on these shores. Uh, and if you think um, you know, of London's population density and other factors such as you know, the public transport system, uh, it spread um, relatively quickly. I think the point again, and I'm, I'm sorry, you must be bored of me saying this, but uh, beware Pat analysis. 
a lot of detail. Um, important context lies behind um, the statistics. So always when you read these stories, just be very wary of jumping to the same conclusion as you're often being led to. All right. And Sophie, the word Brexit if it is actually a word, um, but, but you know, it, it is now returning to the national consciousness again, if, if indeed it ever left. But I guess it's unsurprising that starting to get a few more column inches, given, you know, we're, we're now at the end of May and, you know, June is a bit of a, a sort of critical time. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and give us the latest that you're hearing? Yeah, so so we had the third round of negotiations, uh, the future relationship negotiations a few weeks ago, and you, you may have seen some of the coverage of this. Um, there was little progress. The briefing afterwards was quite brutal. Uh, there was a fairly strongly worded letter from the UK's chief negotiator, David Frost, which is, is well worth a read if you haven't seen it, where he says, uh, what is on offer is not a fair free trade relationship between close economic partners, but a relatively low quality trade agreement coming with unprecedented EU oversight of our laws and institutions. And uh, Michel Barnier responded with his own letter, basically saying that the tone taken by the UK was not helpful. Um, so all in all, pretty negative from both sides. And there is now only one more round of formal, formal negotiations starting next week before uh, the all-important high-level stop-take meeting later in June, which you, you alluded to, which um, the Prime Minister is expected to attend. Um, a bit of movement uh, from the UK as well. We've had the, the UK publishing draft legal text for a free trade agreement uh, last week. And these documents basically used a lot of material from, from previous EU agreements like Canada and Japan. And this is a big part of the UK's positioning that the UK should be offered the sort of arrangements that appear to be pretty commonplace between the EU and other countries and, and that this is not an unreasonable ask. So um, a, a lot more to come on this, definitely. And have you seen any evidence of those sort of key sticking points, any evidence that they're shifting at all? Yeah, in terms of the key sticking points, they, they really are some of the same issues that we were talking about at the end of last year. So Firstly, at level playing field commitments, um, as we know, this is the issue of whether the UK will align with EU standards on things like the environment and workers' rights, uh, essentially in return for, for access to EU markets. And both sides have been pretty clear and consistent on their positions. The EU say that level playing field commitments are vital to stop the UK from undercutting EU standards. And for the UK, they they you know they say they cannot sign up to this as the whole point of Brexit is the power to diverge from those EU standards. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, this has also been a key issue. Um, so this is the fairly complicated arrangement which aims to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland. And there was quite a big moment uh, recently as the UK published a paper on its approach to the protocol and essentially the UK's outlined uh, unfettered access for Northern Ireland's businesses to the rest of the UK. So for trade going eastwards from Northern Ireland to Britain, there'll be no restrictions or additional checks and, and this will be enshrined in legislation. But for trade going from Britain to Northern Ireland and so possibly onwards into the EU single market, there will have to be minimal checks. So essentially this is the UK admitting that there will need to be some sort of process, some checks between Northern Ireland and Britain, but they will be, uh, in, in Michael Gove's words when he presented this paper, light touch. Uh, other key issues, other key sticking points, um, again, these are not, not new, but uh, the overall governance of the agreement, um, fisheries, which is obviously a highly political and totemic issue around access to UK uh, waters, and, and finally financial services. 
Um, and on this, uh, BIO did confirm that equivalence assessments are underway, but that decisions on this will, will probably come after the summer. But as I said, the, these are all issues which we have been discussing for a while, so no real surprises on the remaining sticking points. And what about the prospects of any extension to the transition period? I mean, given everything that's been going on with coronavirus, etc., you might have expected an extension to have been sought, but it's sounding you know, for, from a layperson's perspective, as if number 10 have no plan to to consider that, no public wavering in any case. But are you hearing anything sort of in the in the sort of Westminster gossip, virtual no doubt nowadays, but um, not, not in the pubs and bars around Westminster, but anything that you've managed to, to get insight into? So, yeah, good question. Under the withdrawal agreement, any extension needs to be agreed by the 1st of July. And although it should never be ruled out, um, as you've said, Downing Street continued to be pretty robust in saying that they won't request an extension. Um, and this was reiterated by David Frost yesterday because uh, he had an evidence session uh, in the House of Commons, again, a virtual session. I suppose there is a sense from number 10 that an extension wouldn't actually change anything in terms of the, the substance of the negotiations. These these sticking points will remain. Um, and I guess, you know, there is still this fundamental belief from this government that deadlines are important. They they help focus minds. And obviously, they really don't want to, to break a promise to the British people about not requesting the extension. Clearly, with, you know, as always with these things, there's always the possibility of some sort of fudge, um, some sort of technical implementation extension. Um, for example, they could agree a, a sort of stripped back deal on, on all the essential issues like security, which would then see us formally leave at the end of the year. Um, and then talks on, on the FTA, the free trade agreement, continue beyond 2020. But in general, you know, I suppose there was always an expectation with these negotiations um, and particularly these negotiation stages in the spring and into the summer that they would be really difficult, even without the impact of the pandemic. Um, and that, you know, if a deal was to be done, it would be done at the 11th hour in the autumn. Um, so we really don't know yet, you know, where we'll be by, by sort of October. Um, David Frost did say yesterday that negotiations um, were still at an early stage and that both sides were still setting out their positions. So I suppose much of this at the moment is possibly political positioning. Um, as always with negotiations, they are often dominated by optics and, and, and uh, rhetoric. And, and this is probably particularly true in the build up to this high level stop take meeting uh, in June. So again, as I said, lots to lots to look out for. So watch the space, and um, I guess I guess my plea to you would would keep some spaces in your diary free for us, if you don't mind, because I, I think we'll be wanting to hear from you as as these things unfold. But but no doubt over the coming weeks and months. And will just just as we're talking about Europe, the other side of the channel, um, you know, things have obviously been very busy. Uh, JP mentioned um, in in one of the earlier podcasts about the potential for mutually guaranteed debt in in across Europe and I know you and the team have talked in the past about this being a potential game changer for the European project if it ever came to pass has has anything moved forward at all yes i mean it's weird isn't it i mean to 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 to, to the person on the street jointly guaranteed debt doesn't may not sound like a massive deal um, but if mm. they do get on the line on the over the line on this it, it really is inc an incredibly important step forward for the eu it's a huge brick um, in that kind of uh, ongoing construction of a plausible fiscal and political architecture for the euro now 
if you look at it, Germany's long resisted this kind of redistributive and, and others, to be honest, it's not just Germany, but they, they long resisted this um, redistributive uh, approach for, you know, for very understandable reasons, to be honest. But once you set the precedent here, this approach, if you think about it, could be used to meet future challenges such as, you know, migration waves or climate change. Now, to your question, you know, we're still not there yet. We do seem to be making sort of baby steps forward in the sort of, you know, in the various pipelines that um, uh, that um, that uh, that really are, uh, you know, part of the Euro kind of decision making architecture. You know, this has got to get the, the agreement of all of the member states. Now, understandably, um, there is a desire from some to use this as a kind of quid pro quo to harmonise uh, fiscal rules, you know, government spending rules uh, across the continent to a greater degree. Um there is, you know, there's basically quite thorny stuff still needs to be resolved. But I think the point here for me is it shows how the pressure created by this incredible crisis and the debt amassed fighting it could conceivably force at least one, you know, very, very positive, um, positive outcome. We shall see. We'll keep you informed as, uh, as the news flow comes in. Hopefully we'll have more news to talk about next week. Brilliant. OK, well, we'll look forward to that. So so thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you, Will. And thank you to our listeners and, and keep subscribing and we'll speak to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.